So everyone hear me all right? Very good, very good. A joy to be here this morning. We have a, a special weekend that we celebrate, Memorial Day weekend. I know a lot of our people are out, and that's good, traveling, so we should certainly stay in prayer for them, for safe journey home, and for wonderful times with their family and friends, and the meals they'll have together, and all the meals you guys will be cooking tomorrow, huh? Barbecuing for everyone. So, what is a memorial? What is a memorial? We're going to find that out from the teachings of the scripture because there is a particular Old Testament memorial that was given, one of the only ones in scripture, and it sets the whole tenure and stage for God starting to first divulge and convey and reveal the Messiah, a deliverance from bondage. With that, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time together to come and worship you. We thank you for the joy of having a family of children of God built together upon the rock of Jesus Christ, the foundation of eternity, Lord. We treasure this book you have given us called the Bible, which holds absolute authority over all creation. And we praise you for your grace and mercy in revealing your Son, Jesus Christ, to sinners to bring about a salvation of your people that you have promised long ago in ages past and are still bringing to reality until our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ returns and comes to finalize his kingdom and present it to you, the church of your salvation, our Father in heaven. So we thank you. Teach us. May we feast upon this word and upon the preciousness of the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm going to have a reading in Scripture from John chapter 5. John chapter 5. I think it's applicable to what we're going to look at today in this teaching and uh, to ascertain the things God would like us to see in His Word this morning. And the Holy Spirit would teach us and bring us to a conviction and understanding of the preciousness of God's Word and what his word says and conveys to all of us so that we may know and we may bring honor to him in our lives. The fifth chapter of the Gospel of John is one of those chapters within John's Gospel where Christ is having a lot of dialogue with the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And uh, it actually is at the Feast of the Passover when it's just getting ready to start. Because the Passover was an established feast that lasted quite a while. And uh, so we come to John chapter 5. I'm just going to preface a few things for you and say uh, that Christ had come into Jerusalem. It was right before the Passover. And 
we see that the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, to kill Christ, because Christ had proclaimed that he and the Father were one and that he was of his Father. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath by healing someone that he had just done, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. This was a charge against Christ, that he was equal with God, that he was God the Father, that he was equal with God the Father. And so then when we get to chapter, excuse me, verse 30 of chapter 5, this is where we'll pick up the reading to help us understand the relationship Christ is telling us in relation to he and the Father and all that he is doing and that he speaks with authority on the basis of him being one with his Father, which was a very, very diabolical statement to be made to these Jewish people, these religious leaders, because they are going to establish later on that their father is Abraham and in this text that their father is Moses, not Father God. So we'll pick up if those who are able to stand, please do with us, and we'll get a reading in John chapter 5, verse 30, starting in verse 30 of John chapter 5. Christ's words, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. This is John the Baptist. But the witness which I receive is not from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the lamp, John, that is, the Baptist, that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has borne witness of me. And you have never heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you might have life. I did not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you, the Jews, do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, someone else of your rank, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? But do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for Moses wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? That ends our reading. You may be seated.
astonishing words. Moses spoke of me. Moses spoke of me. Another portion of that text that we need to look at is that you search the scriptures because you think in them you have an eternal life. And it these that bear witness of me. It almost sounds contradictory to what God's holy word teaches, doesn't it? But then again, we have to remember that what John is writing about at this point is the Old Testament. This is what these people had had for centuries, for thousands of years. All the Old Testament. That was the scriptures they searched. That was the scripture they built their religiosity on. That was the scriptures that they proclaimed that Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph, excuse me, Jacob, and Moses were their fathers, their forefathers, of which the first five books of the Bible were built upon. And this is what their religious belief was. And then, of course, the law, the commandments, and to be obedient and obey them. And so we have Christ here in the midst of them telling them a completely different thing. Moses wrote of me. So we come to this point in the reality of our pursuit of God's word, whether it be here in this church and teaching and preaching or whether it be our own individual studies or wherever we may be, is the reality to understand that the whole Bible is integrated together, Old Testament and New Testament. And it is the story of the central person that it conveys of, Christ's own word. Moses spoke of me. So how can we shelve the Old Testament in lieu of just the New Testament? Well, we can't, and we should not. So this weekend, we're celebrating a memorial. So what is a memorial? It's that which we are not to depart from or ever forget and always practice. That's basically what a memorial is. It is something that is structured that we shall never depart from our memory or our practice. That's basically the definition of a memorial. So we're going to look at three aspects that come out of an Old Testament truth of God's Word that has a phenomenal amount of information in it for us to build upon Speaking of the one Jesus Christ, and that is the Passover, the Passover supper. We all know the story about the Red Sea, the parting of the sea, and then we know that the Egyptians are in hot pursuit of the Hebrew people and that they are engulfed in, in the sea itself by the mighty hand of God. They have been in bondage bondage for a long time and in their bondage God is showing them and going to deliver them out so when we come to this Old Testament teaching of the Passover and all the subsequent events related to it we're looking at one of the greatest aspects of Holy Scripture there is it is the first full-blown exposure of understanding and comprehending of the doctrine of salvation, of God's freeing a people, setting them from the slavery of sin 
here depicted in the Old Testament as the bondage and slavery that they were under in the Egyptian country that they lived in. And the Passover meal itself points to redemption, the great doctrine of redemption, where a sacrifice would be necessary to order, to free these people. So it's a glorious Old Testament foreshadowing pointing forward to the Messiah. And let me just read this portion of scripture for you. You don't need to go there just to set the tone for this. It's in Exodus. It's right at this point of time where these people that God has in and of his own volition chosen the Hebrew people to take out of the bondage of sin that they were, excuse me, of slavery that they were so encamped in there in this land of Egypt. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all the patriarchs had already passed away. They had gone aside. If you remember in the Old Testament, God promised to Abraham that a seed would come from him. There would be many people brought out of the loins of Abraham. And he promised to them a special land for them. And he promised to them that he would be their God and they would be his people. So then we go from Abraham, we go to Isaac. You know, picture, a picture of salvation, a picture of sacrifice, a picture of a life of redemption necessary. Isaac was spared. Jacob, we go to Jacob. We see in Jacob the progeny of the Jewish people, the tribes, the expansion. And we see Joseph, God moving him into the land of Egypt where he takes over. And there he speaks even to his own brothers who cast him outside and hoping that he would be killed. And when they finally touch up together after so many years, he speaks to them in these words, what you meant to do to me for evil. God meant it for good. And so that whole complex generation of those four people are gone. But out of that time came Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy after them. Because we end in Genesis in the last book of Genesis and we start in Exodus in its historical order. We're going from the prime of when Joseph is out of Egypt He's died, and there is a new Pharaoh. There is a new Egyptian king by the name of Horus. And so now when we look at that, we find out that we all know the story to some degree that these people are taken out of bondage by the mighty hand of God in signs and wonders and all those plagues that were occurred, all the multiple plagues that were occurred, the last plague being that of the firstborn. And so... Here's this horde of people, and you can place yourself there if you'd like to and see. You've been in bondage for four, generations, four centuries. You've been having to work each and every day under vicious taskmasters. You've had to meet your quota or get beaten or whipped. You are given food enough to just survive, and this has gone on, and you've seen your children and your children's children for years and years and years and years. And then all of a sudden you have this man come in your midst called out by God with his brother, 
Moses and Aaron, speaking words of thus saith the Lord, and tells you in obedience, do as I say, for I am spokesman for God here on this earth. And now these people have gotten all their things together and they are, and I'm going ahead of the story, I'm going past the Red Sea. They have crossed through the Red Sea. They've been traveling in the wilderness. have no idea where they're going, what they're going to do, following this man and his brother. And they see this mighty sign and wonder when the scriptures say, and God raised the walls of the Red Sea. And they passed through it. And now they're on the other side. And they turn around and they look back. And here's this horde of Egyptians whom Pharaoh has changed his mind and decided to go recapture them and take them back into that bondage that they were under. And there was fear, great degree of fear in these people's life at this point. Fear that they would be recaptured. Fear and trembling. So I'm just going to read one verse, the verse that God gives to Moses to speak to them to understand this setting. Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you will only have to be in obedience. That's all they had to work on, sitting there watching this mass of chariots coming down upon him to annihilate them. And then the walls of water engulf and kill all of them. The Egyptians you see today, you will see no more. But then let's go to the matter of what we're going to look at because this is what God said. Look to me for salvation. I will deliver you. I am going to invoke for you this salvation. And from every issue in your life that you could understand and see and know, I will fight for you. I will not forsake you. And I will grant you the fullness of my promise. Where did that promise start? Where do we look for it in the scriptures? And what is it saying? So if you go back to Exodus chapter 12, okay? Let's go to Exodus chapter 12. This is the evening before the last plague, which was the last plague, the death of all the Egyptian firstborn, the death of all the Egyptian firstborn sons and their livestock. And so before God performs this last sign, he gives them a mandate, a command, a directive related to this last act that he's going to do before he sets them free from their bondage. 
chapter 12 of Exodus, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It will be the first month of the year for you. Verse 3, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, each one take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then you take a smaller lamb and share it with others, or take the lamb and share it with others. Verse 5, your lamb shall be an unblemished male, one year old. Verse 6, the end of that in the congregation of Israel is to kill the lamb at twilight. Verse 7 is, moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it upon the two doorposts and upon the lintel of the houses which they eat it in. Verse 8, and they shall eat the flesh the same night roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but roasted with fire, both its heads, its legs, along with all its entrails. And you do not shall leave any of it into morning, but whatever is left over in the morning, you shall burn it with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night. I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay, verse 14. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. That word in the Old Testament Hebrew here is translated permanent means eternal. God is making an eternal ordinance of a memorial of the Passover supper as a part of what his word of truth conveys. And then he goes on to tell them how they're supposed to be a holy assembly, come together in worship. Verse 17 says, you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. Uh, on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generation's reiteration as a permanent ordinance, something you are supposed to have in your memory and teach to others, and you are to practice. Verse 21, Then Moses called for the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lamb according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood which is in the basin. You shall apply some of that blood, uh, excuse me, you shall apply some of that of the blood that is in the basin on the lintel 
above the door and the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside until the next morning. For the Lord will pass through and smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroying angel to come into your house to smite you. Verse 24. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. And it will come about when you enter the land which the Lord will give you as he has promised. You shall observe this rite or this memorial. And it will come about when your children will say to you, what does this rite mean? You shall say to them, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and they worshiped. Blood, lamb, doorpost, fire, haste, sandals, clothes. You see, all these related things were set forth that God told Pharaoh to his spokesman, let my people go into the wilderness to come worship me. The Passover was an instituted supper that is still practiced today by the Jewish culture. It is still practiced today within the synagogues of Judaism throughout the world. It varies a little today, obviously. They don't place the door, the blood over the door, and they can eat various types of food related to it. But the main thing is unleavened bread. So there's two aspects of this. There's many facets contained within it, but two major aspects. The Passover lamb had to be spotless, unblemished, no broken bones, and they were to slaughter the lamb in this first Passover that would be a memorial, a perpetual, and they were to do as God said in place the blood upon the lintels and the doorposts and the angel of death would pass that by. They would be preserved. But the Egyptian firstborn would be smoked. So we see what's in this is the need of a sacrifice. This is the first institution in the starting of what sacrifices would be within the Old Testament economy and their religious system. That develops in the next book after Exodus, Leviticus. But here is the signs that a Passover lamb would be necessary to free these people. A meal given, a sacrifice given, blood let. And instead of God taking the blood of the Israelites, their firstborn, he redeemed them by passing that over to judgment on the Egyptians. The other part of that is to the God, small g, of the Egyptians at that time was a God by the name of Horus. That's who they believed in. This was a God of war, of fertility, virility, wealth. And the Egyptians 
in this period of time, many of them had instruments of serpents, crowns made with serpents' images on them. It was a very, very cultish and a very evil belief system. And Horus was their god was thought to be did his main work at midnight. And if the reigning Pharaoh at that time, if he died, then his firstborn son became automatically heir to the kingdom of that dynasty of Egypt. So what do we have here? We have the small god of the Egyptians battling against the powerful god, large G, of heaven and earth. And so there's so many things working here where God was showing not only in this the first earmarks of salvation, a Messiah, a sacrificial system. The blood would be the thing. Blood in the body would be that, which would be uh, relieving the people of their bondage and setting them out. So we're looking at all of these things here to try to understand and comprehend. God said to let my people go, and they would, and that he made a covenant and a perpetual memorial that sets forth the feast of the Passover, which points to Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, the spotless lamb of God that would take away sin, is first displayed in this taking the Hebrew people out of their bondage and freeing them, freeing them. The unleavened bread is a picture and the mind picture for us of sin. It's used that way in scripture. When you put yeast into bread, it rises. Unleavened bread does not. So it's a picture of that purity. Stay away from sin, the sin that has entered that swells us up and causes us such great agony within our life. So we have the Passover, we have the unleavened bread, we have the lamb, we have the blood, we have the body, we have the freedom, the purity of the lamb unblemished, we have the sacrificial system, we have God in dominance over Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods, we have judgment, wrath, and worship of God, and these people are freed in this promise of salvation. So what happens? Here's the question. It's very easy to see the Christ of the Old Testament in this Passover sacrifice. But the scripture says here, this day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it eternally or perpetually. So the question is, why don't we celebrate the Passover in this church or the Christian church of the world? Why? Because it's clear in God's word. It is a command. And he says it's eternal. It's permanent. You. He's not just speaking to the Old Testament Hebrews. He has instituted an eternal decree here. 
that will go on forever and ever. And out of it, every generation would tell their sons and their sons' sons what the Passover meant. That your people were in bondage and that the great God of heaven and earth released them. And he set his judgment and his wrath upon the enemy of them, the Egyptians, by taking their firstborn and sparing the firstborn of the Hebrew people through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. All that in the Old Testament points us forward to the Passover lamb of the New Testament. But the question still remains. Uh, my wife and I and our children when they were younger were involved in a number of Passover celebrations. Even in Messianic Jewish churches. Messianic Jewish church would be that which Jewish people by the grace of God have been born again and come to know him. They're Christian Jews. They still practice the Passover. But not as a means of salvation. They do it in honor of God as a ceremony that God set forth that they love to as they're part of their culture celebrate. And, and it's an amazing thing. There's Davidic dancing. There's all kind of different foods. It goes on and on and on. And it is a wonderful thing to remember there. But it does not add to their salvation. They'll tell you that. They do it out of the joy of doing it. But I'm still asking the question here biblically. It's a permanent ordinance. It's an eternal ordinance. So why don't we celebrate it? It was a supper given to these people at a time in the most destitute time of their life where they, God told them to their spokesman Moses and Aaron, Obey me, listen to me, see the great signs and wonders that I will convey. And I will give you a meal, and you go in at twilight. And you stay in your house, and you consume that meal, and be ready to obey me and follow me the next morning. Because that night, at midnight, the avenging angel came. And they could hear the wailing and the crying throughout the whole land of Egypt when the firstborn of the livestock and of the sons of the Egyptians were smote. The Passover supper. The Passover supper is a picture of redemption. So you sacrifice in your homes the slam. And my wrath and judgment because of that blood, the sign of the blood and of the spotless lamb will be directed elsewhere. And I will deliver you out of your bondage. But I will judge them. This is the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, now coming more fully blossomed for us to understand and to see. The Passover lamb, the Passover supper. Why do we not celebrate it in this church?
I don't ask that angrily. I ask that for an answer. The beauty of it it is in Scripture. The sacrificial system would start in the next book in Leviticus. It was always preempted with nothing blemish, no defect in the animal that you bring in to sacrifice to me. And the sacrificial system was of multiple animals, and it was a picture of temporary forgiveness of sin. But it never could be a permanent forgiveness of sin. So it is pointing us further on into the scriptures until that could come about in Christ Jesus. Because you see, Jesus was promised back in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman, Mary, birthing Christ. Abraham, the seed of the nations and people, as God promised. And now the representation of how that would look in the future and the promise of it in the past, the Passover, would be a great meal for them. It would be a redeeming meal for them, and it would point to the Messiah as Redeemer. So let's go to Luke chapter 22, and I'll answer that question for you. Still want to know. Why don't we celebrate the Passover in the Zion Church of Curtin? God said it's a perpetual. It's eternal. We are to do it forever and ever and ever. The Old Testament was the law. The law that God gave Moses. He was the law bearer, the law giver. And that was the system of sacrifices and law. You live and obey under the law and you sacrifice for the sins when you disobey God's word and God's law. That's the old covenant. Luke 22, we're under the new covenant, the better covenant, grace and truth revealed in Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the law. And the answer to that question is right here in Christ Jesus. Not only did he fulfill the law, but he filled the eternality and the perpetual ordinance of the Passover. Because Christ alone is eternal. And only one could be given. One death, spotless and blameless, Paschal and Passover lamb, that would set us free from our sin. Okay, Luke. Twenty-two, verse seven. Let's see. Okay, verse fourteen. This is the Passover. These men are in the upper room. They are instituting. Christ is going to institute the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper at this point in time, which fulfills the Old Testament Passover Supper. 
and he tells them, you'll find an upper room when you go into uh, the city there. Verse 13, excuse me, of Luke 22. And they departed and found everything just as he had told them in that upper room, and they prepared the Passover supper. And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, these Christ's words to these men on the eve of his death, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, this is, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given up for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant. It is the new covenant. The old replaced with the new. The old covenant, the new covenant. The law, Christ fulfilled. The sacrificial lamb, Christ became. Prophet and prophesied about in the Old Testament. Fulfilled in the New Testament. The priest over his own death. Spotless lamb of God. And so we see here. I will... I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And it was fulfilled in the kingdom of God because he took the cup and said, this is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. But what's a remarkable thing about this is we don't have to practice the Passover ordinance anymore. Because God said it is an eternal ordinance. And it became eternal because of Christ. Is eternal. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, he fulfilled that eternal part of the Passover. He fulfilled it fully as the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now sin wouldn't be necessary to ask forgiveness of it in a sacrificial system because he did it once for all and it is his blood that cleanses and his body that was given and he was spotless and without blemish because if you notice one of the most unique things happened right at the time of his death it was customary for Romans to break the bones the major bones on both legs at the end of their life. If they wanted to be sure they were dead. On horseback or on foot with large swords or clubs, they would whack right dead center of what we call the shin bone. Break through all both bones 
the body would lag down a little bit more. Complete asphyxiation was just like that, where they were already at a state of almost dead. But the Old Testament said not a bone of his body shall be broken. And unorthodox, not a part of the practice of the ritual of crucifixion. A soldier rose up, rode up and ran a spear under his ribcage. The last vestiges of his blood and water, Scripture tells us, flowed out. A beautiful picture of the blood of the Lamb, the cleansing of the Lamb, of the body of the Lamb, of the fulfilling of Passover supper, of that meal, of the covenant God made in all the aspects of the covenant of salvation to bring a people to himself, first depicted in the Old Testament Israelites and now in both Jew and Jew alike. And Christ said, I won't eat this meal with you ever again until I return to gather my kingdom, which is you. So let's look at that conclusion in Revelation chapter 19 as we come to an end. The Passover supper of the Old Testament, the Lord's Supper, the New Testament, and then the new kingdom to be established as we read it when he returns again. Revelation 19, verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. There's a sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty clasps of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God reigns. Hallelujah, for our Lord, the God Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, write, John, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. And John said, I failed to worship him, the angel that was there with him. He said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and rages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth came a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule him with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and his thighs a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings and Lord of Lords.
He is coming to take his bride. How blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. For there will be eternal feasting, eternal joy. There won't even be a temple there. It's a beautiful place where there will be no sin. But the tree of life will be there, Jesus Christ. There will be no longer any curse that is on mankind or on the earth, for the earth will be renewed and remade. And the throne of God and of the spotless Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants shall be there with him. And I conclude with these few words from a great old hymn. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. And he takes you by the hand and leads you to the promised land as he had promised the Jews he fulfilled. Paradise restored. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. Let's pray. Father Peter wrote in his epistles, what sort of people ought we to be? Believing upon and living for and longing for the marriage supper of the Lamb as we live in this earth. And he said we should be people praying and hungering and beseeching Lord Jesus Christ come and take your church and your people that we may with, be with you in that perpetual feasting, a perpetual meal that you alone have provided in eternity, forever and ever. In his name I pray, amen.